while Abraham made it clear to his servant when he's seeking a wife for Isaac that it can't be from where he is. He's got to go back home. Now, this is interesting because he does a covenant with him. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV on this Monday. Good to have you with us as we study the Word of God. There's a lot going on here in Genesis chapter 24. So let's look at it in just a moment, about three minutes time. Right now, Corey is here. Corey? I'm going to be taking a look at the patriarchal structure of ancient Israel and the ancient Near East. Ryan? Today, Dr. Don Batten returns to talk to us about the relationship between humans and apes. Very good. Look forward to that. Dr. Don Batten is excellent. And Janice, what are you going to do? Today, my segment's called How We Live. All right. So let's take our Bible guide. If you don't have one, we'll tell you how to get one in just a moment. But take your Bible guide and turn to the passage, then open the most important book of all, the Bible. Let's hear what God says to us. Genesis 24, 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath." Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. You know, it's interesting as we focus today on the covenant. Not everybody understands a covenant or a promise made by God or a covenant made between people. Uh, promises or covenants are not referred to in the world today as something that we think about because we always try to tie things up in contracts, <laughs> business contracts that have uh, impact in different ways. But a covenant is much more serious. Now, in Hebrew, the word covenant is berith. Berith is a promise and an agreement made between two or more people, which entails an alliance and commandment to follow. So the covenant means that we follow a degree of how we perform with each other. Now, these agreements are often made with God as their witness and source of accountability. For example, Abraham wanted Isaac to marry a woman from his homeland far away from Canaan. 
So Abraham made a covenant with his oldest, most trusted servant in his household. Now the servant swore an oath before the Lord and before God, and in symbolic action, he placed his hand under Abraham's thigh. This is the area associated with Abraham's posterity. Now the servant made a promise with Abraham and was accountable before God for keeping it. In other cases, a bereft can be made between God and man, such as the covenants with Noah, Abraham, and David. In Noetic covenant, God's commandment was not only for Noah and his sons, but in fact for all humanity. In fact, it's still in effect today and still has serious consequences for breaking it. A covenant must be followed. To break a covenant is not only to break alliance with man, listen carefully, but also to break alliance with God. Praise God that the gift of repentance is a covenant forever under the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when we talk about the new covenant, when we talk about God's covenant through Jesus Christ with us, we understand that the Lord has made the covenant. It's very important. It's not something that we take lightly. It's not a promise that can be broken or cast off. Something that we need to take very seriously. If you have your Bible guide, open it up to today's passage as we look at the 24th chapter of Genesis. And if you don't have a Bible guide, you can call us or write to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and get a hold of yours. The 24th chapter of Genesis is outstanding. Now, let's pray. Father, help us today as we look at your Old Testament, as we look at the original text, and we say, Father, in Jesus' name, help us. It's a translation into English from Hebrew and Greek, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it. So thank you, Father. Change, Holy Spirit, change our hearts as we read it. In Jesus' name, and we said together, amen and amen. Now, as we look at this, let's understand what it says. 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to his oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And the servants said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Verse six. But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. This is fascinating. Abraham made it clear to his servant that Isaac was not going back to his homeland. The decision we make impacts our children and our future generations. The decisions we make impact our children and our future generations. Let me just say that 
it's important for us to remember that. Because as we understand how God works, we fulfill what God wants that impacts not just me, but my wife and my children, their children and their children. Very important. When we stay in God's will in our life and we do our best to follow him, that affects the future generations after us. And I know I'm fifth generation Christian, praise God. So I realize my grandparents and the great grandparents have prayed for me. So thank you, Jesus, even before television ever was. Now let's go back to this because this is really interesting. Genesis 24 verse eight says, and if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there, which brings me to this point. The servant would be released from the oath if the woman was not willing to follow him. Now, remember, covenants with the Lord are for all time and all place. Covenants with God matter. They're for all time and all place. We need to keep that in mind because the Lord tells us and speaks to us, follow my covenant. When we follow the covenant of the Lord, God helps us to go forward. And so he was given the possibility of release if the woman wouldn't go with him. Very interesting. Okay, let's read on because this is a fascinating one. Genesis 24, 9 says this. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The physical action of the oath taken by the servant was serious. Our oath and commitments to follow the Lord is serious and significant. I want to tell you something. Our oath to follow the Lord is serious and significant. There are people that I have known that I knew uh, made a decision for God. And uh, about five years later, they were living like crazy. And they say, well, that was just an earlier time I went through. And I have to determine, you know what? God is either going to get you or, I mean, when I say get you, he's going to convict you until you come back or you never were saved in the first place because the Lord is serious about his covenant. God does not sponsor any flops. God always takes care of us, even when we make mistakes. And I know someone right now who is in a, in, in a rebelling against God and in a troubled place, and he is miserable. And let me tell you something. He needs to come back to the will of God come back to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you do that, then you, you make yourself right with God. And let me tell you, there's no better place to be. Of all of the things in my life that I want, I want number one to be in the will of God because that is the safest place I could ever be. God always takes care of me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking care of me. God will take care of you. So let's stay in the will of God. Father, help us to stay in your will. In Jesus' name, and we said together, amen. Now, from a biblical perspective, why do you think God made humans and apes look similar? Well, the same thing, same reason I think that there are similarities right through all living things, and that is we see a continuum, if you like, which speaks to us of one creator. If we're entirely different to every living, other living thing on earth, we had entirely different chemistry, entirely different everything, then we might think there's different creators. 
Welcome back to the program. Now, all this month, I'm promoting this product called A World by Design 3, which is an ongoing series of mine in which I interview some of the top scientists and researchers in the world. And late last year, I attended a Creation Super Conference in Muskoka, Ontario, Canada, hosted by Creation Ministries International. And I was able to sit down with the scientists and the speakers there. And all this month, I'm going to be showing you some short clips from these interviews. And today, I'm going to be sharing another part of my interview with Dr. Don Batten. And Dr. Batten has a PhD in plant biology, and he's the senior scientist for Creation Ministries International Australia. And in this clip, I'm going to be asking him about humans' relationship to apes. Now, according to the Bible, God created humans and apes separately, and God made human beings in his image, which separates us from the animal kingdom. But according to evolution, humans and apes are related because... In that story, humans and apes descended from a common ancestor. And most of us have heard the claim from evolutionists that human and ape genes are 99% similar. But is this really true? Well, that's my question to Dr. Don Batten. Okay, well, continuing with this theme, this theme of similarity, We've all heard the argument that humans and apes are 99% similar. Now, is that true? Well, it's hard to measure, actually, because you've got two genomes, which are about 3,000 million DNA base pairs, or letters, if you like, in size. That's, that's like a 1,000 Bible-sized books of information. Hmm. So just think you have two 1,000 Bible-sized books of information, two two libraries of information and they differ in different places and you want to compare them and say what the percentage similarity is. Mm. It's going to be very difficult, isn't it? Yeah. And so people have tried various ways of doing it and it's actually very difficult. But the best figure recently published uh, by Richard Buggs and a co-worker in the United Kingdom, it seems to be about, uh, well, say at least at least about 5%. Uh, when you take into account everything, it's probably less than 90% similar. Hmm. You think, well, that sounds fairly similar. But when you think about the 3,000 million letters and you think about a 1% difference, that's still 30 million letters. And a 10% difference <laughs> is 300 million letters. Wow. So it's a big difference. Uh, so the question is, is it possible for an evolutionary process to take a common ancestor with a chimp seven million years ago and change it into a chimp on one line and a human on another line, which, which is the evolutionary story? Is it possible to do that using mutations and natural selection? And that can be modeled now. Computer models can follow the mutations and the way in which they're transmitted from generation to generation. And there's a computer model called Mendel's Accountant. And Mendel's Accountant, it's been around for like a dozen years at least and been very thoroughly tested. It uses, it uses evolutionary assumptions. So when you plug into this uh, program, this simulation, uh, a human-like population, about 20 years of generation time, uh, and uh, you look at how long it would take, and this is making assumptions that make evolution even possible. In other words, it assumes a very high 
benefit from mutations, about 10% improvement uh, in the survivability or the reproducibility due to the mutation. It also assumes a very high selection rate. Very unrealistic assumptions which make it more likely that evolution will happen. And when you do that, you find that just to get two letters lined up on the DNA together in a population would take 84 million years just to get two letters. So even 1%? So even 1% is a problem. Hmm. I mean, if you've got 99% in your maths test, you'd say, oh, I'm pretty good at maths, you know. <laughs> but 99% similarity with humans and chimps is actually a big difference. Hmm. And it's, a, it's an insurmountable difference for an evolutionary process to explain it. Now, if you want to see the whole interview, plus all the other interviews that I recorded at the Creation Conference, then they're all available on this set, which once again is called The World by Design 3. And on it, we discuss topics like dinosaurs, genetics, aliens, UFOs, distant starlight in the age of the Earth, climate change, ancient Egypt, and a ton more. And this set is available both on DVD and digital download. To order the DVD set, you can call, write, or go to our website at BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And if you prefer to go digital, then you can simply download it through the website. And it's for a suggested donation of $60. And we just want to thank you for your support. Very good. Thank you, Ryan. Excellent. Corey? All right. Well, you probably have noticed as we've been reading through Genesis, especially over the weekend, as we get into some of the, the stories of the lives of the patriarchs, you've probably noticed that their culture is extremely different from our culture today. So today we're going to be focusing in on uh, some of the structure of that culture. Take a look. Our modern Western culture is fundamentally different than the culture we see represented in the Bible. We're separated by time, distance, custom, and structure. In the modern West, we've endowed our governments with considerable responsibility and the power to enact those responsibilities. The government regulates, aids, and protects. Biblical Israel, on the other hand, was a part of the ancient Near East, whose societal structure was based around the family. It was tribal and patriarchal. This means the responsibility for the economic, legal, and physical security of the family was entrusted to the oldest male member of each family. He regulated, aided, and protected. Extended families lived together in order to survive. They would grow their own food in crops and animals. They shared the responsibility of harvest, grinding grain, making clothes, all the daily necessities of life. In Israel, it's believed that multiple individual family homes would be built around a central courtyard, enabling up to 30 close relatives, a patriarch and matriarch, their children and spouses and their children to live and work together. And if the family grew too large, it could split and become two family units. And we see this reflected in Genesis, when Lot separates into his own household when his family grew too large to stay with Abram. Now this arrangement, as well as the physical family itself, was referred to as the father's house, reflecting the responsibility given to and the authority expected from the oldest male member of a house, the father. Now, this makes sense of the custom of the firstborn's inheritance that's also seen in the Bible. The firstborn son of a father would one day become the patriarch, responsible in every way for the survival and morality of his other family members. And this is why the firstborn was given a double inheritance. It wasn't an emotional favor. This practice prepared the son with the physical resources he would need to care for the family. 
This societal structure also makes sense of why people were identified as the son of their father, as your legal, moral, and social standing depended on him. And he was responsible for your actions, whether good or bad. He had a societal obligation to take care of your needs, to protect you, and to spend family resources, if necessary, to get you out of trouble. Male members of a household would stay with the family, while women would switch allegiances. When they married, they would integrate into their husband's family, becoming a member of his or his father's house. And therefore, her societal and physical protection and moral accountability would be transferred to that patriarch. This system worked for family units, but it did leave some members of society vulnerable, mainly widows, orphans, and divorced women. For women whose husbands divorced them, they would be expected to return to their father's family, and the bride price that her ex-husband had paid to her father or brother would then hypothetically have made up for her financial needs. Foreigners, widows, and orphans were particularly vulnerable in this system. Without a larger safety net of family, they could be left without a means of provision and almost no hope of acquiring provision in the future. Now, these vulnerabilities explain the custom of Levite marriage or brother marriage that we see appear in the Bible. If a woman was widowed without having a child, but was of childbearing age, her dead husband's brother would take her into his household so that she had immediate provision and would have a son with her that would bear his dead brother's name. This ensured that the woman would also have future provision as that child would inherit their legal father's estate. It also explains the Bible's legislation in the Mosaic Law that is meant to protect the foreigner, widow, and orphan. Without an overseeing state to protect them, they were the most vulnerable of society. How amazing is it that God is identified as their protector? It's also worth noting that just because the Bible shows God working in this type of society doesn't mean that it's endorsing this society. We're not expected to adopt a patriarchal system for our own. God's added legislation of this system in the Law of Moses could be seen as God further limiting this structure. He added his morality to an already existing system. In fact, God contradicting the patriarchal system's expectations is often seen in the Old Testament. God routinely chooses and elevates a younger born over the firstborn. Think Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and David. All of these were those who should not have become leaders within the patriarchal structure. And yet we're told that God sees the heart of mankind, while man only looks at the outside. And he, in these cases and more, he forced this patriarchal society to think and operate outside of its structure. God's not necessarily endorsing the structure, but working despite it, just like he can do for us. So something to keep in mind is this societal structural difference, because it is going to come into play in several of the histories that we read in Genesis and in Exodus and beyond. Very good. Excellent, Corey. Excellent. Janice. And there is cultural changes. There's a lot of different things. But the one thing that I looked at as I read through A Bride for Isaac is that there's a couple of things that I want to point out about Abraham, and not only about Abraham, but about the servant that he chose to take an oath and go and find this bride for Isaac. And my point is, how we live our lives for Christ impacts others. Some of you might be saying, what is she talking about? Well, we learn in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a chapter about the heroes of faith that by faith, Abraham obeyed God. 
What I found really interesting about Genesis 24, 1, it says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. We see that Abraham's faith in his God and knowing the nature of God brought blessings and, uh, well, many blessings to Abraham. And then we look at verse two. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, and then he began to give instructions for a cultural way of of swearing an oath, taking an oath. But what I found really interesting was that this was to the oldest servant of his house. So this man, I believe, not only would have been old by age, but the longest serving in Abraham's household, he would have seen how that the faithfulness of Abraham and his obedience towards God brought fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. In the things that God spoke to Abraham and he moved forward on, this servant would have seen that. So the servant of Abraham would have witnessed the years of faithful service of Abraham and the blessings of God upon him. We read in verse seven, we can see that Abraham trusted in God's provision because the servant wasn't questioning what Abraham was going to do. And Abraham was very clear on what he believed God would do. But the servant's action was questioning what the woman would do, what her choice would do. And um, if if she chose not to follow it. And, And we see here that Abram had said, if the woman doesn't follow after you and do what I've said, then you're released from this oath. And the servant moved forward and took the oath. But I just thought, how we live our lives in this day and age, in the culture that we live in, we need to be faithful. We need to be obedient to the word of God. We need to follow him and seek after him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put our trust in him because he is that solid foundation of truth. And boy, don't we need that in today's world. Well, the Beyond the Call program is a great program. I interview people about when they came to know Jesus Christ, when his name became more than just a word to them. It is a great program and they are available wherever you get your podcast, wherever you get your Bible Discovery TV podcast, look for Beyond the Call and uh, get a hold of that. I encourage you to do so. Today we pray, Lord, I praise you for all that you are, all that you have done and all that you're going to do in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what we say, amen.